God, those communists are amazing. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Turn Left This Podcast. I'm Mike He Him, and tonight I'm here with Sterling He Him and Word He Him. And tonight we're going to talk about Karl Marx, the father of it all. This will be the first in our series on the five heads of Marxism. So, more episodes to come. So, Karl Heinrich Marx, he was born May 5th, 1818, in Trier, which was in the Rhine province of Germany. And Germany itself was, at this time, the Kingdom of Prussia. And Marx is designated FRSA, noting that he was a fellow of the Royal Society for Arts, Manufacture, and Commerce. Karl was the oldest surviving boy of nine children. He was of German, Dutch, and Jewish ancestry. Jewish ancestry. That's, like, really hard to say. Ancestry? Jewish ancestry. Like, and just... Jewish and... See? I think it, no, it's because you're putting pressure on me now. I blame you. I think you made it hard. Mm-hmm. You like to think that. Wait, that's what she said. That was the perfect opportunity for that. <laughs> Karl Marx's father, Heinrich Marx, was a successful lawyer and a man of the Enlightenment, devoted to Kant and Voltaire. He took part in agitations for a constitution in Prussia. Heinrich was something of a rebel. The Prussian authorities kept an eye on him due to his membership of the Casino Club, an organization that extolled the virtues of the French Enlightenment and his mother, Henriette Pressburg, was Dutch. Both his parents were Jewish and were descended from a long line of rabbis. And I put this in here for mockery because I just Googled, like, Karl Marx, Jewish, and one of the first things that comes up in Google is Fashopedia. It's just, like, a whole fucking Wikipedia for fascists, by fascists, and they make... Wait, like, this exists outside of Conservapedia? Yeah, that's a whole separate one. It's like a real oh site God. literally called Fashopedia? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I mean, certainly, you gotta click the link in the well, notes and read along, like... And I put some pictures in here because they're funny. Like, you have to see this picture of the Fashopedia. They have this very cringe, looks like a D&D kind of logo on it. But they say right here in the intro, they say, the same thing that I had in there, Karl Marx, FRSA, born and died. But they just say, was a, and they, it's like weird how they insert the text too. It says, was a filthy Jews, German philosopher, economist. Of course, Jews is a link and it just takes you to the Fashopedia page for Jews. And it's just like, it's surprisingly short. Um, it just says that like they're evil and bad and they are deceptive. Like, oh my god! Believe it or not, the Fashopedia is not very high effort. It's like kind of lazily done. It's so <laughs> terrible. Just... I'm looking at it right now. It's so bad. <laughs> and we're not even talking about the viewpoints, of course. Like it's badly done. Like it's just not even competent. It's also bad, but yeah, it's also <laughs> terribly done. Like, oh, what is this even? All right, well, I'll just move on with uh, Marx here. So Marx's family had a long connection to Trier, as the position of city rabbi had more or less been passed down his paternal line since 1723. His father Heinrich was the first to break with this tradition by becoming a lawyer. Damn. So Marx wasn't the rebel of his entire family, it was actually his dad. And then Karl Marx had to rebel against his dad by being even more rebellious and starting all of communism. (laughs) (laughs) yeah. So Jews were still oppressed in the Prussian Empire during the early 19th century, and Heinrich converted to Protestantism, in order to be able to practice law. Carl was baptized at six years old, along with his surviving siblings, Sophie, Herman, Henriette, Louise, Emily, and Caroline, into the Lutheran Church in August of 1824. Their mother followed suit in November 1825. Marx was privately educated by his father until 1830, when he entered Trier High School. Here, he was influenced by more radical social policies of the Enlightenment. During high school in Trier from 1830 to 1835, Marx's school was under police surveillance, suspected of harboring liberal teachers and pupils. Oh, hell no. I know, right? (laughs) I love that. The police are watching because they might have liberals there. It's like actually good on you, police, for once. (laughs) Marx's writing during this period exhibited a spirit of Christian devotion and a longing for self-sacrifice on behalf of humanity. 
Another possible influence was his Jewish background, which exposed him to prejudice and discrimination, which may have led him to question the role of religion in society and contributed to his desire for social change. In October of 1835, Marx attended the University of Bonn. There he exclusively studied the humanities in such subjects as Greek and Roman mythology and the history of art. He presided at the Tavern Club, which was at odds with the more aristocratic student associations, and joined a poet's club that included some political activists. A politically rebellious student culture was indeed part of the life at Bonn. Many students had been arrested. Some were still being expelled in Marx's time, particularly as a result of an effort by students to disrupt the session of the Federal Diet at Frankfurt. Marx left Bonn after a year. In October 1836, Marx enrolled at the University of Berlin to study law and philosophy. At the University of Berlin, Marx was introduced to Hegel's philosophy and the Young Hegelians. The Young Hegelians were a powerful presence in the revolutionary student culture there. Marx joined a society called the Doctor Club, whose members were intensely involved in the new literary and philosophical movement. Their chief figure was Bruno Bauer, a young lecturer in theology. Oh, Sterling, this is also why you got to open the notes. Yeah, I just opened them. You see the picture of Bruno Bauer? Hey, what is this note? <laughs> I just uh, put Bruno Bauer parentheses twink. <laughs> that's that's a hot dude. Kind of looks like Ward, right, dude? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you take his glasses off, you puff his hair up, and I'm kind of saying this Ward right there. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Okay, yeah, I'm going all right, all right, maybe. <laughs> you can get it. <laughs> it was either this or the picture of him old. And uh, then he just gets like the older, distinguished, handsome dude after he loses his hair. I mean, you can just Google it. It's the first thing that comes up if you Google Bruno Bauer. This dude um, is just fuckable regardless of age. <laughs> he just keeps it. So Bruno Bauer, who became Marx's doctoral advisor, was developing the idea that the Christian Gospels were a record of human fantasies, not history, arising from emotional needs. Whoa. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so Bauer posited that Jesus was not a real historical person. Marx initially rejected and was appalled by these ideas. I actually disagree. I think okay. Jesus Jesus likely did exist. We have there's so many documents that talk about who we, you know, assume as Jesus that I think it'd be very unlikely that so many sources collaborated to make up a fantasy about a man that, you know, they had no idea we'd still be talking about today. Now, do I believe Jesus did miracles? Absolutely not. I believe he was just Logan Paul of his time that didn't know his real dad. Oh. <laughs> Damn. That's a good one, though. I will take a second to do my usual thing and plug another fucking podcast. Speaking of Jesus as the historical person, check out the Rev Loves episode on exactly that as like a mystic. And I think that's probably the best take I've heard. I like on that. I like that. The Jesus as a human being. He's like, like what he was actually up to. Yeah, kind of just like. Ross Patoon like, getting less ass, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's one way to put it, so that'll work. <laughs> so let's go back to uh, Bauer. So Bauer posited that Jesus, like I said, was not a real historical person. And as a Christian, Marx initially rejected and was appalled by these ideas. So Marx enrolled in a course of lectures given by Bauer on the prophet Isaiah. Bauer taught that a new social catastrophe, quote, more tremendous than that of the advent of Christianity was in the making. Oh, God. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. What's more tremendous than that? <laughs> I don't know. Ask Africa. Yeah, I mean, he did call it a catastrophe. But to that point, read How Europe Underdeveloped Africa by Walter Rodney or just watch a fucking YouTube video uh, as a summary of it. I'm currently reading through it. Yeah. Listen to the Anti-Empire Project or any of Justin Poder's podcast stuff. Like some of my favorite stuff. Like I said, Marx enrolled in a course of lectures given by Bauer on the prophet Isaiah. The young Hegelians began moving rapidly toward atheism and also talked vaguely of political action. (laughs) 
<laughs> so recognizing the threat and the subversion that the young Hegelians posed, the Prussian government tried to run them out of the universities. Bauer was dismissed from his post in 1839. Marx's closest friend at the time, Adolf Rutenberg, who was an older journalist, served a prison sentence for his political radicalism. Then in May of 1838, Marx's father died, resulting in a diminished income for the family. Marx's studies were also suffering. Nevertheless, he submitted a doctoral dissertation to the university at Hena and received his degree in April of 1841. His thesis was The Difference Between the Democritian and Epicurean Philosophy of Nature. In 1841, The Essence of Christianity by Ludwig Feuerbach greatly influenced Marx and the young Hegelians. For Marx, Feuerbach successfully criticized Hegel. Hegel was an idealist who believed that matter or existence was inferior to and dependent upon mind or spirit. Feuerbach posited the opposite, a materialist standpoint showing how, quote, the absolute spirit, the driving force for idealists, was a projection of, quote, the real man standing on the foundation of nature. Marx's philosophical efforts became a combination of Hegel's dialectic, the idea that all things are in a continual process of change, resulting from the conflicts between their contradictory aspects, with Feuerbach's materialism, which placed material conditions above ideas. In 1842, Marx began contributing to the Rheinische Zeitung, a newly founded liberal democratic newspaper in Cologne. Cologne was the center of the most industrially advanced section of Prussia. At this time, Marx advocated for freedom of the press and believed that censorship could only have evil consequences. In just 10 months, Marx became the editor of the Rheinische Zeitung. As such, he was obliged to write editorials on a variety of social and economic issues, ranging from the housing of the Berlin poor and the theft by peasants of wood from the forests to the new phenomenon of communism. At this time, Marx was becoming estranged from the young Hegelians and was succeeding in making the newspaper's circulation a leading journal in Prussia. Nevertheless, Prussian authorities suspended it for being too outspoken. At this point, Marx had been engaged to Jenny von Westphalen for seven years, and on June 19, 1843, they were married. Jenny was an attractive, intelligent, and much-admired woman, four years older than Karl. She came from a family of military and administrative distinction. Her half-brother later became a highly reactionary Prussian minister of the interior. Her father, a follower of the French socialist Saint-Simon, was fond of Karl. Marx's father also feared that Jenny was destined to become a sacrifice to the demon that possessed his son, meaning his life's work, his work on political economy. At the time, 1843, Paris was the center of socialist thought, and of the more extreme groups that went under the name of communism. So the recently young married couple, Marx and Jenny, moved to Paris. In 1843, Marx became the co-editor of a new, radical left-wing Parisian newspaper, the German-French Yearbooks, then being set up by the German activist Arnold Rouge to bring together German and French radicals. Uh, I clicked the wrong thing in the video chat. And say you want me to read for a bit? What did I just click? Why did it do that? Well, fuck it. While we got the recordings going, it is in Paris that Marx first became a revolutionary and a communist, and began to associate with the communist societies of French and German working men. Their ideas were, in his view, utterly crude and unintelligent, but their character moved him. Quote, the brotherhood of man is no mere phase with them but a fact of life, and the nobility of man shines upon us from their work-hardened bodies. There you Yo, yourself. what, Mars? <clears throat> Bonk. Yeah, let's test this. Uh, does everything sound like it's going good? No cutouts? Just read that paragraph that Ward just wrote, because for some reason it's like when you talk for like more than a couple of seconds, then you cut out. Okay. It is in Paris that Marx first became a revolutionary and a communist and began to associate with communist societies. There you cut out. Let me, let me try that one more time. See how it does. It is in Paris that Marx first... in Paris? <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. 
<laughs> it's in Paris that Marx first became a revolutionary and a communist and began to associate uh, with communist societies and French and German working men. Their ideas were, in his view, utterly crude and unintelligent, but their character moves him. The Brotherhood of Man is no mere uh, phrase, I was about to say farce, is no mere uh, phrase with them, but a fact of life, and the nobility of man shines upon us uh, from their work-hardened bodies. Okay, okay, Marx. (laughs) (laughs) Marx wrote this in his so-called Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts of 1844. These manuscripts were not published for some 100 years, Nope, so you cut out after 100 years. Really? I don't know what changed. Like. All right, but let me just continue on with the notes since we all read the work hard and bodies section. That's the only reason we're doing this episode tonight. Just everybody read about work hard and bodies. <laughs> all right, so Marx wrote this in his so-called Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts of 1844. These manuscripts were not published for some 100 years, but they're influential because they showed the humanist background to Marx's later historical and economic theories. During the short-lived period of the German-French yearbook's publication, Marx befriended Friedrich Engels. Damn, son! <laughs> Hell yeah. Engels was a contributor and was to become Marx's lifelong collaborator. Though the German-French yearbooks was short-lived, in its pages was Marx's article, quote, toward the critique of the Hegelian philosophy of right, which is often quoted for Marx's assertion that religion is, quote, the opium of the people. Of the masses. Yeah, I mean, either one. I think it's... uh. A matter of translation from the German, but yeah. Mm, gotcha. Tomato, tomato. It was there, too, that Marx first raised the call for, quote, an uprising of the proletariat. Based. <laughs> Once more, however, the Prussian government intervened against Marx. He was expelled from France and left for Brussels, followed by Engels, in February of 1845. That year in Belgium, he renounced his Prussian nationality. The next two years in Brussels saw the deepening of Marx's collaboration with Engels. They deepened something all right. <laughs> it was a stretch. Engels had seen it firsthand in Manchester, England, where a branch hey. of the <laughs> <No>. <laughs> all we're going to do for the rest of the episode now. <laughs> Once you get to Marx and Engels, it's just all bromance jokes. Yeah, yeah. So Engels had seen at firsthand in Manchester, England, where a branch factory of his father's textile firm was located, all the depressing aspects of the Industrial Revolution. He had also been a young Hegelian and had been converted to communism by Moses Hess, who was called the, quote, communist rabbi. In England, Engels associated with the followers of Robert Owen. Now he and Marx, finding that they shared the same views, combined their intellectual resources and published The Holy Family in 1845, a tediously long and wordy criticism of the Hegelian idealism of the theologian Bruno Bauer. No, I thought we liked the twink! (laughs) Not anymore, he's canceled. (laughs) I don't look like him then. Yeah, he's he's still hot. I mean, yeah. All right, then I kind of look like him then. <laughs> but anyway, uh, their next work, the German ideology. Oh, that sounds <laughs> that just sounds problematic. You, you know, it's crazy if you think about it. Germany, above any other country, was was really prime oh, for a, <laughs> <laughs> was really prime. For a socialist revolution, like a real one, and, and not the national socialist right, revolution yeah. that occurred. But Germany really could have been the real spark that even fueled Russia. I mean, um, imagine just a 
a unified Russia and German just socialist superpower. I mean, that's what we almost had, except for one fucking prick bankrolled by Henry fucking Ford. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't just him, but like, (laughs) yeah, that's true. That's true. Like layers to it, but whatever. That is Sterling kind of why people get so mad at the sock Dems and like the people who sold out the German socialists to the liberals and then they ended up getting executed by the Freikor and then it became like Weimar Germany and then they ended up having the fascist revolution instead of the socialist revolution. It's like literally yeah. if the the quote unquote progressives who thought that they were the the moderates or like the you know, like literally the liberals of today who think that the they liberals were the fucking ones. Like, did it. They did it, dude. They fucking did it. And like, just like you said, Sterling, if Germany had also turned socialist while Russia had done it, like we would be living in the socialist world today. In like, a better world. Straight up. Yeah. No one could have stopped that. If it wasn't for it was Russia, you wouldn't have stopped fucking of, Germany. Like, the dome housing. Like, yeah, the dude. beautiful dome housing. Like, oh, what the world would have been like. All right. So the next work. The German ideology contained the fullest exposition of their important materialistic conception of history, which set out to show how, historically, societies had been structured to promote the interests of the economically dominant class. However, it didn't find a publisher and remained unknown during its author's lifetimes. Though they wrote it from 1845 to 1846, it was unpublished until 1932. During his years in Brussels, Marx had several confrontations with the chief leaders of the working class movement, and in doing so, established his intellectual standing. He excoriated the German leader Wilhelm Weitling and polemicized against the French socialist thinker Pierre-Joseph Proudhon in his book The Poverty of Philosophy. Proudhon wanted to unite the best features of such contraries as competition and monopoly. He hoped to save the good features in economic institutions while eliminating the bad. He was also an anti-Semite. He was like vigorously anti-Semitic. Marx, however, declared that no equilibrium was possible between the antagonism in any given economic system. Social structures were transient historic forms determined by the productive forces. Quote, the handmill gives you society with the feudal lord, the steam mill, society with the industrial capitalist. Proudhon's mode of reasoning, Marx wrote, was typical of the petty bourgeois who failed to see the underlying laws of history. And then there was something I put in the notes after the fact, but I had this whole sidebar on Proudhon versus Marx, and I just looked to like the poverty of philosophy page. Yeah, so Proudhon wrote that thing, the poverty of philosophy, and then Marx, in response, wrote the philosophy of poverty, and so in 1847, this is according to the Wikipedia, in 1847, a secret society called the League of the Just met in London and decided to formulate a political program. They were mainly composed of the emigrant German handicraftsmen and sent a representative to Marx to ask him to join the League. Uh, Marx and Engels joined the League, which thereupon changed its name to the Communist League and enacted a democratic constitution. Marx and Engels were entrusted with the task of composing the League's program. They worked from the middle of December 1847 to the end of January 1848. It took them so long that the London communists were already impatiently threatening Marx with disciplinary action when he finally sent them the manuscript. The London Communist League promptly adopted it as their manifesto. The Communist Manifesto... <laughs> Jesus Christ, it scared oh, yeah. the shit out of me. <laughs> I didn't know if you were going to be on it. Wake up, Sterling! <laughs> it's communism time! <laughs> And of course, for any of our readers that are unfamiliar with Pradhan, it's like he's not uh, bread daddy or what is it, bread Santa or whatever. He's, yeah, maybe Kropotkin's number two, maybe Pradhan's number three. But Pradhan, that, that was the one where he was like, uh, he just kept getting arrested. And, and every time he'd like come out of jail, like 
there was another revolution and the and the government was like already overthrown and he had like he'd like write all this stuff about what they should do to overthrow it and then he'd come out and it's already overthrown it's just like what the fuck it was like france just like every six months was just like overthrowing the government that's great yeah we gotta do an episode on that guy then there is some really just comical and fascinating history about him i've i've read a little bit about i i certainly do not consider myself knowledgeable on him in the in the slightest but the little bit i do know is very fascinating and comical i mean france just kind of is comical around the but you know france was just a melting pot of ideas, especially circulating socialism. I mean, it's another thing. Like we, we never give these other countries credit for where a lot of socialism and communism came from. And yeah, Prodhound and France in general and the anarchist thinkers. I mean, a lot of what we have today is, is because Marx had someone to have a dialectical opposition to. I mean, you can't have dialectics without someone you disagree with, you know? Yeah, it wasn't just Marx and Engels, believe it or not. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But actually getting back to them. So yeah, the London Communist League promptly adopted it as their manifesto. The Communist Manifesto enunciated the proposition, <laughs> enunciated the proposition that all history time. had hitherto been a history of class struggles. It summarized in pithy form the materialist conception of history worked out in the German ideology and asserted that the forthcoming victory of the proletariat would put an end to class society forever. It mercilessly criticized all forms of socialism founded on philosophical, quote, cobwebs and set forth 10 immediate measures as first steps toward communism, ranging from a progressive income tax and the abolition of inheritances to free education for all children. It closes with the words, quote, The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. Hell yeah, dude. I imagine no inheritance. You have to go out there and fucking do it yourself like the rest of us. Mm-hmm. Generational wealth, these motherfuckers. You know what, what's fucked up is like, oh, my family, like my grandfather you know, had left a bunch of like generational money. And then, <laughs> yeah, and, well, no, no, he, he actually, he left a lot of money for the family. Like my, I should actually have an inheritance, but you know, my dad was one of eight kids and they were all just as fucking stupid with money. So they all blew that shit real fucking quick. So yeah, we, we probably don't have nothing but debt on our side. So you remember how in like, there was this guy Malthus and he was like coming over this whole theory about why wealth is, destined to just spread out among progeny from like the one creator of wealth like if you start a business and you just build up this wealth you're gonna have a bunch of kids and then just gonna get all spread out by these ne'er-do-wells and he had this malthusian problem so then everybody just started marrying their sisters and cousins and everything they were like whoa that's not what i meant by this bro like that's not what you're supposed to do <laughs> yeah i mean that, that, that was like, how their caste system worked they, they were all fucking inbred just to keep power and wealth consolidated that's the logical endpoint of capitalism and like inheritance. It's almost like when you have rules that don't make sense, you end up doing things that are horrific. You're gonna fuck Here. your cousin. Yeah. Capitalism leads to cousin fucking. Yep. Guaranteed. You heard it here first. <laughs> I met a descendant of the from the Habsburgs. Who? Like a Habsburg? Cat cousin one. fuckers. Yeah, he didn't have the jaw. He's like a little bit further off, but like the <laughs> dude obviously like was from money. Yeah. I didn't hang out with him. It was at a wedding. But yeah, told me and I was like, oh, okay. I'll just avoid that mm. motherfucker. <laughs> um, I left off at, uh, they have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. That fucking epic quote. Going on. So in 1848, revolution suddenly erupted in Europe, in France, Italy, and Austria. Marx had been invited to Paris by a member of the provisional government just in time to avoid expulsion by the Belgian government. As the revolution gained in Austria and Germany, 
Marx returned to the Rhineland. There in Cologne, Marx advocated a policy of coalition between the working class and the democratic bourgeoisie, and arguing strenuously against the program for proletarian revolution advocated by the leaders of the workers' union. Don't worry, he would soon learn his lesson. I mean, that paragraph alone is like <laughs> fucking cringe. Like the fact that he was like, no, we need a coalition of the working class and the democratic bourgeois opposing the nomination of independent workers candidates for the Frankfurt Assembly and arguing strenuously against the program for proletarian revolution advocated by the leaders of the workers' union. So they had a party, like a little vanguard party, advocating for a proletarian revolution. And Marx was like, no, like Sterling, when you were talking about earlier, how it would have been if there was like a socialist uprising in Germany at the same time that yeah. there was going to be one in Russia, what that would have led. And it's like, it's almost like saying here, like Marx is kind of responsible for that not happening, but this is like way too early for like, all those <laughs> yeah, other things. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, th this is early on in Marx's life. He, he didn't have that kind of influence and was just like a Hegelian still really. Well, we could dream. Imagine if he had just been like that much more accelerationist. <laughs> Marx does eventually go full tanky. <laughs> and if not, Engels writes it for him after he dies. <laughs> um, the hope which Marx had placed in the progressive bourgeoisie in the manifesto, although even there he enumerated a series of conditions precedent to the real cooperation with it, was not justified. Towards the fall of 1848, Marx and Engels changed their tactics. Thank God. Still not rejecting the support of the bourgeois Democrats, nor severing his relations with the Democratic organization, Marx nevertheless shifted the center of his activity into the proletarian midst. When the more revolutionary leader of the workers' union, Andreas Gottschalk, was arrested, Marx eventually supplanted him and organized the first Rhineland Democratic Congress in August of 18. Damn, Marx, that's actually kind of dirty. Like, he waited for the real radical guy to get arrested and he just slid in his spot? Fuck, dude. <laughs> During the elections for the new parliament, disagreements arose. Marx and his followers insisted that the workers, where there was no chance of electing their representatives, should vote for Democrats. The minority protested against this. Sounds, it just sounds bad. Like it's, it's just hard for me to read those sentences. In March and April, friction between the workers and the Democrats who were united in the District Committee of the Democratic Societies reached a stage where a schism was unavoidable. Marx and his supporters resigned from the committee. As Marx and his followers were setting out upon the organization of the Labor Party, a new blow was struck at the revolution. Having put an end to the Prussian National Assembly, the government decided to also dissolve the German National Assembly. Marx's position in Cologne was precarious. His reputation and published works of political radicalism meant he was being watched by the Prussian government, and although he did not have to live underground, he was nevertheless subject to expulsion from Cologne by a mere government order. Having been exposed to the incessant prosecutions of the Prussian government, having been expelled from Paris on the insistence of the same government, and having feared deportation from Belgium, Marx finally resolved to renounce his allegiance to Prussia. He did not declare his allegiance to any other country, but definitely renounced his Prussian one. The Prussian government seized upon it, when Marx returned to Cologne, the local authorities recognized him as a citizen of the Rhine province, but they demanded that the Prussian authorities in Berlin confirm it, who, when contacted, responded that Marx had lost his rights of citizenship. This is why Marx, who was trying very hard for a reinstatement into the rights of Prussian citizenship, was compelled in the second half of 1848 to desist from making public appearances. When the revolutionary wave would rise and conditions would improve, Marx appeared openly before the public. As soon as the wave of reaction would rise and repressions would become more furious, Marx vanished and confined himself only to literary work, that is, to the directing of the new Rheinische Zeitung. This is why Marx was so reluctant to become chairman of the Workingmen's Union. The ferocity of the Prussian government swept like a storm across the country. Its armies swooped down upon the southwest. The new Rheinische Zeitung was among its first casualties. It was discontinued on May 19th when the famous Red Number was published and caused a great sensation. Marx was indicted by the Prussian government on several charges, 
including advocacy of the non-payment of taxes. The jury acquitted him unanimously, but he was ordered banished as an alien on May 16, 1849. After this, Marx left the Rhine province and now, as a foreigner, had to abandon Germany. Expelled once more from Paris, Marx went to London in August 1849. Defeated by the failure of his own tactics of collaboration with the liberal bourgeoisie. <laughs> I mean, you should learn, bro. You should learn sooner. <laughs> he rejoined the communist have... in London and for about a year advocated a bolder revolutionary policy. Hell yeah, that's my guy. A quote, address of the Central Committee to the Communist League written with Engels in March 1850, urged that in future revolutionary situations, they should struggle to make the revolution, quote, permanent. Mark sounded like Trotsky. <laughs> hey, that was quick. That was actually really good, thank you. <laughs> by avoiding subservience to the bourgeois party and by setting up, quote, their own revolutionary workers' governments alongside a new bourgeois one. So yeah, I guess that's probably where the first idea of the Vanguard Party came to be. Because mm. uh, I believe it's like Lenin that actually develops that into like, the formal idea of like a vanguard party. Like that's where like Marxism Leninism comes into play, right? Mm -hmm. I thought. Yeah, I'm embarrassed I don't know that answer. Mm -hmm. I mean that's definitely getting cut if it's not right. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let, let's do it both ways. We all say yes, mm -hmm. of course. Are you stupid? And then the next way we all go, no, you you need to read your theory, Mike. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <sighs> so Mark came into conflict with other revolutionaries, whom he called, quote, the alchemists of the revolution who proposed to hasten the advent of the revolution by undertaking direct revolutionary action. Marx wrote in September 1850, such persons substitute, quote, idealism for materialism and regard pure will as the motive power of revolution instead of actual conditions. Marx scorned the idea of trying to seize power immediately, and the militant faction in turn ridiculed Marx for being a revolutionary who limited his activity to lectures on political economy. And he got booed for being a nerd. Basically, like he was the glasses emoji. <laughs> Marx was like literally a left com in this era. Marx gradually stopped attending meetings of the London communists. So passive-aggressive. This really just sounds like leftist infighting. This is, like, really bad. <laughs> yeah, nothing's changed. It's communists fighting with each other. But it's like, Marx's point is, is kind of, I'm, I'm guessing, like, the point of even Marxism-Leninism, which is you always strive to... It, it's a scientific process. You always make it better. You test it. That's dialectics. But... What Trotsky does is he just kind of like takes it and, and uses that as a tool to try to undermine Marxism-Leninism. Like, it, it's a very different thing because of how he uses it. So I wouldn't say that Marx is sounding like Trotsky. I would say that Trotsky used those ideas to kind of twist them to just try to... Because, I mean, Trotsky was just trying to bolster his position to try to get the uh, seat as premier. Trotsky didn't have any fucking beliefs at that point. He was, he was shallow. He's a fucking shill at that point. I mean, he just, he, he came in with a fucking letter from a man who couldn't even like speak. Like he had to write the letter and like he fucking dying. And he, he wrote this huge fucking letter that's lost to history about uh, how don't let Stalin have it. Really Stalin, like, Lenin's like number two fucking guy who was I'm like side by, side by side with him for like his whole fucking life. That's the guy that Lenin said, don't let Stalin have. That's yeah. fucking insane. That's insane. All right, let me try and get back to the notes for a little bit. We see Marx repeatedly asserting an approach that seems less radical than the radicals, but still too extreme for the establishment. In 1852, Marx devoted himself intensely to working for the defense of 11 communists arrested and tried in Cologne on charges of revolutionary conspiracy and wrote a pamphlet on their behalf. 
The same year, he also published in the German-American periodical his essay, The 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte, with his acute analysis of the formation of a bureaucratic absolutist state in support of the peasant class. The next 12 years were, in Marx's work, years of, quote, isolation, both for him and Engel in his Manchester factory. From 1850 to 1864, Marx lived in material misery and spiritual pain. His funds were gone, and except on one occasion, he could not bring himself to seek paid him. In March 1850, he and his wife and four small children were evicted and their belongings seized. Several of his children died, and his wife rushed about frantically trying to borrow money for a coffin. For six years, the family lived in two small rooms in Soho, often subsisting on bread and potatoes. The children learned to lie to the creditor, quote, Mr. Marks ain't upstairs. Once he had to escape them by fleeing to Manchester, his wife suffered breakdowns. Mm. During all these years, Engels loyally contributed to Marx's financial support. The sums were not large at first, for Engels was only a clerk in the firm of Airmen and Engels at Manchester. Later, however, in 1864, when he became a partner, his subventions were generous. Marx was proud of Engels' friendship and would tolerate no criticism of him. Requests from Marx's wife and from his friend Wilhelm Wolf also helped to alleviate their economic distress. Sorry, did you want to say something? something? No, I'm just playing my mustache. <clears throat> if you had one, you'd understand. <laughs> Marx be like, money, please. <laughs> Marx had one relatively steady source of earned income in the United States. Marx became the European correspondent of the New York Tribune at the invitation of the managing editor, Charles A. Dana. The newspaper was sympathetic to Fourierism, the utopian socialist system developed by the French theorist Charles Fourier. From 1851 to 1862, Marx contributed close to 500 articles and editorial, Engels providing about a fourth of them. He ranged over the whole political universe, analyzing social movements and agitations from India and China to Britain and Spain. In 1859, Marx published his first book on economic theory, a contribution to the critique of political economy. In his preface, he again summarized his materialist conception of history, his theory that the course of history is dependent on economic developments. At this time, however, Marx regarded his studies in economic and social history at the British Museum as his main task. He was busy producing the drafts of his magnum opus, which was to be published later as Das Kapital. Some of these drafts, including the outlines and the theories of surplus value, are important in their own right and were published after Marx's death. In 1864, Marx's political isolation ended with the founding of the International Workingmen's Association. Although he was neither its founder nor its head, he soon became its leading spirit. Also known as the First International, brought together socialists of various stances and initially caused a conflict between Karl Marx and the anarchists who were led by Mikhail Bakunin. Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> Marx attended as a representative of the German workers and sat silently on the platform. A committee was set up to produce a program and a constitution for the new organization. After various drafts had been submitted that were felt to be unsatisfactory, Marx, serving on a subcommittee, drew upon his immense journalistic experience. His, quote, address and the provisional rules of the International Workingmen's Association, unlike his other writings, stressed the positive achievements of the cooperative movement and of parliamentary legislation. The gradual conquest of political power would enable the British proletariat to extend these achievements on a national scale. As a member of the organization's general council and corresponding secretary for Germany, Marx was henceforth assiduous in attendance at his meetings, which were sometimes held several times a week. For several years, he showed a rare diplomatic tact in composing differences among various parties, factions, and tendencies. The international grew in prestige and membership, its numbers reaching perhaps 800,000 in 1869. It was successful in several interventions on behalf of European trade unions engaged in struggles with employers. In 1870, however, Marx was still unknown as a European political personality. It was the Paris Commune that made him an international figure. The Franco-German War also broke out in 1870. When an insurrection broke out in Paris and the Paris Commune was claimed, 
Marx gave it his unswerving support. On May 30, 1871, after the commune had been crushed, he hailed it in a famous address entitled Civil War in France. Quote, History has no comparable example of such greatness. Its martyrs are enshrined forever in the great heart of the working class. You know, when you said the summer of 69, I was just like, imagining like the song the summer of 69 playing and it's just like marks like <laughs> with all these like communists like marching on motherfuckers you know what's funny is the youtube video like in the script they say right there like nowhere is a year in this song like the song was written in the 80s <laughs> it's supposed to not be about a time period <laughs> okay so in Engels's judgment the paris commune was history's first example of quote the dictatorship of the proletariat Marx's name, as the leader of the First International and author of the notorious Civil War, came synonymous throughout Europe with a revolutionary spirit symbolized by the Paris Commune. The advent of the Commune, however, exacerbated the antagonism within the International Workingmen's Association and thus brought about its downfall. You have a bit of a buzzing going. Do I? Um, I was about to say, you want me to read a couple paragraphs? I mean, if you want to, yeah. All right. Uh, take over where I said uh, Marx's name. On top of that page. Oh, okay. It just search marks in that document. I'll take you right to it. <laughs> yeah, I'll take you right to it. It's like super quick. <laughs> Marx's name as the leader of the first international and author of the notorious civil war became synonymous throughout Europe with the revolutionary spirit symbolized by the Paris Commune. The advent of the commune, however, exacerbated the antagonisms within the International Working Men's Association and thus brought about its downfall. English labor leaders found they could make many practical advances by cooperating with the Liberal Party and, regarding Marx's rhetoric as an encumbrance, resented his charge that they had, quote, sold themselves to the Liberals. A left opposition also developed under the leadership of the famed Russian revolutionary Mikhail Alexandrovich Bakunin. But my anarchist... Marx. <laughs> Hopefully not listening... I miss Jaren. I, I, I don't no, shit I mean, on the anarchist too much. Beyond just like obvious memes, it's a good time. And like Jaren and, and other like actual real anarchists, I think they know which ones we're talking about. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it should hopefully be beyond clear that we're like, we have nothing but comradeship and love for our anarchists. Comrades. It's just like, if you call us anarchists unironically, then... You just need to learn, and even then, we will welcome you with open arms. We're just going to shoot yeah, on yeah. you good-naturedly in the meantime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, anarchists are actually on the fucking left, and for that reason, like, I'm cool as shit with them. Yeah, just not in caps. Yeah, or anarchities. I don't got time to babysit. <laughs> Though he admired Marx, he had not forgotten in 1848, Marx had charged him with being a Russian agent. Yeah, I okay. Get it. Wow, that sounds <laughs> yeah, familiar. Okay. Yeah, all right. <laughs> He felt that Marx was a German authoritarian and an arrogant Jew who transformed, who, who wanted to transform the German council into a personal dictatorship over the workers. He strongly opposed Ma several of Marx's theories. That just shows you, Bakken don't know what the fuck he's talking about. What was I talking about, anarchists? Let me tell you about how anarchists are fucking bitches. <laughs> Dude, it's so funny. Like, we just spent like... 30 seconds ago, we're like, okay, anarchists, like, we shit on you guys a lot, you're cool. But then all of a sudden, we get to, like, one anarchist being kind of anti-Semite. And I'm like, one sentence. why is it the anarchists are always anti-Semites? Like, why are they always low-key fashion? Like, what is going on with the anarchists? Like, oh, give us 30 seconds every time, man. 
Sorry, Ward. Now you know what it's like. Uh, <laughs> that's all good. The Bakunin, the mission of the revolutionary was destruction. He looked to the Russian peasantry with his propensities for violence and its uncurbed revolutionary instincts, rather than to the effete civil workers of the industrial countries. He acquired followers, mostly young men, in Italy, Switzerland, and France, and he organized a secret society, the International Alliance of Social Democracy, which, in 1980... I just... I'm sorry. I'm having trouble with this motherfucker barking. It's like, you know... like Haas, dude. Does he have to? Like, I don't care if you're an anarchist or not. Like, you cannot look at Marx and say he wants to be a dictator over the working class. That's the most bonkers fucking shit I've ever heard. You can have critiques on Marx. There are critiques, but... His whole fucking thing is the dictatorship of the proletariat, you dumb motherfucker. Like, I'm sorry. Look, man, all I'm going to say is, like, he acquired followers, mostly young men, in Italy, Switzerland, and France. So he went to all the kind of Western, like, white countries, and he acquired a bunch of followers there as an anti-Semite, saying that the leftists weren't leftists enough because they wanted to be dictators. Does this sound like fucking Passox to you? Dude, I, I try not to shit on anarchists because I, I know some really good ones. But man, when I, I haven't studied enough Bakken and I, I probably should not use this one sentence as like making my mind up about him. But God damn, was yeah, that go a for bad good take? Mm-hmm. Was that not a fucking shit take? Continue. Marx, however, had already succeeded in preventing its admission as an organized body into the international. Bakunin began organizing sections of the international for an attack on the alleged dictatorship of Marx and the General Council. Marx, in reply, publicized Bakunin's embroilment with the unscrupulous Russian student leader, Sergei... Don't even bother with the name. Yeah, Nechayev, who had practiced blackmail and murder. Without a supporting right wing and the anarchists left against him, Marx feared losing control of the international to Bakunin. He had wanted to return to his studies and finish Das Kapital. Marx the bookworm. Oh, yeah. Motherfucker was trying to write the greatest critique of capital ever produced, and Bakunin's over here like, this motherfucker wants to be a dictator. Trying to get him into some fucking YouTube drama. And he's a fucking Jew bastard. Is the shit he's throwing out? I'm like, bro, what the fuck? I'm definitely clipping that piece from yeah. right there. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> it's better not to explain. That's the cold opening, yeah, just that. Just, yeah. And he's just a cut, fucking Jew bastard. Cut, cut everything else. <laughs> oh, oh no. At the Congress of the International at The Hague in 1872, the only one he ever attended, Marx managed to defeat the Bakunists. Then, Engels moved that the seat of the General Council be transferred from London to New York City. The Bakuninists were expelled, but the International languished and finally disbanded in Philadelphia in 1876. Yeah, womp womp the International. What's up? Come at me. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Let's see. The next section I have here, we talk a little more about Marx's personal character. And I kind of think of this section as the he's just like me for real section. Because like this is where the Prussian government or the uh the cops were observing him and uh they were talking a little bit about his habits and he was just like a lazy guy, like he was just sitting around drinking all day. Um he's very unkempt and nessy. <clears throat> but so Marx was a combination of the Promethean rebel and the rigorous intellectual. He gave most people an impression of intellectual arrogance. Marx felt uneasy before mass audiences. 
avoided the atmosphere of factional controversies at Congresses, never went to demonstrations, and rarely spoke at public meetings. Likewise, he avoided meeting distinguished scholars with whom he might have discussed questions of economics and sociology on a footing of intellectual equality. So Marx was a, a quote, small groups man, most at home in the atmosphere of the general council or on the staff of a newspaper. Despite his broad intellectual sweep, he is prey to obsessive ideas such as that the British foreign minister, Lord Palmerston, was an agent of the Russian government. So the original Russiagator. Which was the original <laughs> Rachel Maddow. He was determined not to let bourgeois society make a, quote, money-making machine out of him. Yet he submitted to living on the largesse of Engels and the bequests of relatives. He remained the eternal student in his personal habits and way of life. And then this is the article I have here. Karl Marx was the original dirtbag leftist by Michael Utrecht from 2017. And so this is, quote, a Prussian police agent's report, 1853. And this is a cop's internal report on Marx when he and his wife Jenny were living in London. And given all the talk about the dirtbag left these days, I thought this description of the old man's lifestyle might ring familiar to some. Marx is of middling height, 34 years old, despite his being in the prime of life, he is already turning gray. He's powerfully built, and his features distinctly remind one of Samer, but his complexion is darker and his hair and beard are quite black. The latter he does not shave. His large, piercing, fiery eyes have something demonically sinister about them. Hell yeah, he's the father of communism. <laughs> However, one can tell at first glance that this is a man of genius and energy. His intellectual superiority exercises an irresistible force on his surroundings. In his private life, he's a highly disorderly, cynical human being and a bad manager. He lives the life of a gypsy, of an intellectual bohemian. Washing, combing, and changing his linen are things he does rarely. He likes to get drunk. I love this guy already. I mean, if I didn't yeah, like Karl like Marx enough, drunk. like, yeah. <laughs> He is often idle for days on end, but when he has work to do, he will work day and night with tireless endurance. Okay, so he's like manic. It's fine. Like, bro just had like some illnesses. <laughs> he's just he neurodivergent, like, man. Yeah. Don't I'm, be ableist. I'm, I'm, I've got ADHD too. I understand yeah. this completely. For him, there's no such thing as a fixed time for sleeping and waking. He will often stay up the whole night and then lie down on the sofa, fully dressed, around midday and sleep till evening, untroubled by the fact that the whole world comes and goes through his room. Hilarious. <laughs> His wife is the sister of the Prussian minister, von Westphalen, a cultured and pleasant woman who has accustomed herself to his bohemian existence out of love for her husband, and now feels perfectly at home in such misery. She has two girls and one son. All three children are truly handsome and have the intelligent eyes of their father. I mean, it's like, why do the Prussian cops like him so much? Like, <laughs> <laughs> As a husband and a father, Marx is the gentlest and mildest of men in spite of his wild and restless character. Marx lives in one of the worst and therefore one of the cheapest quarters of London. He occupies two rooms. One of them looks out on the street. That is the salon. The bedroom is at the back. There is not one clean and solid piece of furniture to be found in the whole apartment. Everything is broken, tattered, and torn. There is a thick coat of dust everywhere. Everywhere, too, the greatest disorder. Okay, maybe they don't yeah. like it so much. Like, I mean, like, Angles wasn't sending enough money, if you ask Mars. <laughs> so, like, of course the furniture is all bad. Like, he ain't got no money to buy new shit. More money, please. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, we, we find over and over again that Marx was just always poor, just constantly poor. In the middle of the salon stands a large old-fashioned table covered with oilcloth. On it lie his manuscripts, books, and newspapers. Then the children's toys, his wife's mending and patching, together with several cups with chipped rims, dirty spoons, knives, forks, lamps, an ink pot, glasses, Dutch clay pipes, tobacco ash. In a word, everything is topsy-turvy, and all on the same table. A rag and bone man would step back ashamed from such remarkable collection. I guess maybe a rag and bone man is their version of a, a homeless person back then. You know, I want to say uh, one way that you know Marx was really about that shit 
Like he really meant it. Like that he was really that guy is the fact that he was poor and broke as fuck because he understood capitalism better than the fucking Rockefellers. Like I've always told like capitalists that are trying to like, you know, get their businesses up and going. They're like, they asked me for advice. I'm like, read fucking capital. Mm. I mean, it's the fucking blueprint for (laughs) capitalism. Like if you really want to like do capitalism, you've got to understand what it really is. Cause you guys are all out here doing this like fake shit and just hoping you're going to make it. Cause you're, you're trying to do the right thing. Capitalism isn't about doing the right thing. If you want to make money, it's all there. That is funny Sterling, because I do think a lot of people who get into business culture and they decide at some point, usually in like their mid to late twenties that they were going to, they're going to like hunker down in their career. They're going to really get serious. And so they just start adopting like business culture, but then they can make the mistake of like thinking the rhetoric is true and that business yeah. is trying yeah. to like provide a product and we're just trying to help people. We're going to provide a service and fill it back. No, like, no. No, 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 sir. <laughs> you got, you got to take the aesthetic, but understand and relish the corruption. Mm-hmm. You have to find a way to produce nothing and collect infinity money for it. So you need property, sir. You need yeah. <laughs> this just in uh, turn left. This is now hustle nomics. <laughs> and we're going to teach you how to fucking embrace the fucking chaos and the exploitation and make this money. <laughs> I mean, by that same token, Sterling, like, you know, Karl Marx is a real one because he was fucking broke and still writing about capitalism. It's like, you know that we're real ones because, like, we're a bunch of dudes in our, like, early 30s and, well, late 30s. No, we like, were not. Yeah. <laughs> I'm early 30s, you old yeah. fucks. <laughs> what I mean is, like, we are in the right demographic to be, like, producing Andrew Tate-style hustle fucking culture podcast. Yep. We're not doing that shit. Like, we are not telling you over 100 episodes just the same thing, fucking real estate, over and over again. Like, that's literally what it boils down to. It's also boring yeah. to do that. Like. <laughs> I've got a decent credit score. I could go be a fucking landlord tomorrow and mm-hmm. literally not have a fucking job. Like I, I that that's the bad part is you become a communist and you learn how capitalism actually works and you can actually go do it. And then now you have a battle because like you actually have the ability to go do that thing. And you're like, yeah, but that thing's fucking icky. And so, you know, we, we actively choose to not go do that thing and just be a little bit and not saying like my bills are paid. I actually live comfortably, uh, spend money on board games. Uh, yeah, you do, but, but like, dude, I, I could be killing it. I guarantee you if I really was a shitty person. Sucks to have to sleep at night, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. But uh, getting back to Karl Marx. So one chair has only three legs. That's how broke he was. He only had four, three legs on the one chair. <laughs> on another chair, which happens to be whole, the children are playing at cooking. My... This one is offered. What's up? Sorry, am I buzzing again? Yeah, sorry. Uh, it's all right. I mean, you also skipped a paragraph. I oh, thought. yeah, but we, we already established that it's not recording the buzzing, though, right? Yeah, it's not recording the buzzing. It's fine. Yeah, fuck um, it. Keep moving. Yeah, no, you did skip a paragraph. The one I got highlighted I right here when he entered Marx's room. Thank you. Okay, so then. Oh, and Ragabone Man is, yeah, basically like a homeless person. Basically, uh, you would walk around and pick up anything that people left out on the side of the street to throw away, and then you would try to sell it. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Nice. Thank you. Okay, so yeah, when you enter Marx's room, smoke and tobacco fumes make your eyes water so badly that you think for a moment you are groping about in a cave. 
Gradually, your eyes become accustomed to the fog and you can make out a few objects. Everything is dirty and covered with dust. It is positively dangerous to sit down. One chair I mean, has like, only three legs. I mean, like, smoke pr- clears out pretty quick, right? Yeah, just open a window. So, like. Yeah, so, like, did the cops just, like, bust in on him while he was, like, having a hot box sesh in his fucking bedroom? I'm sorry he was fucking cool. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. He was literally smoking too different. Like, <laughs> yeah, like he was probably actively smoking when they busted in on him. They're like, "Yeah, you couldn't see shit, man." Uh, yeah, like, bro, uh, you you're sitting on a three leg stool. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> Cocaine's a hell of a drug. So gradually, your eyes become accustomed to the fog, and you can make out a few objects. Everything is dirty and covered with dust. It's positively dangerous to sit down. One chair has only three legs. On another chair, which happens to be whole, the children are playing at cooking. This one is offered to the visitor, but the children's cooking has not been wiped away. If you sit down, you risk a pair of trousers. So you bust in on Marks in the middle of the vape sesh, and then he offers you a chair, and you're pissed off it's not clean enough? Go fuck yourselves, guys. You're being spoiled brats. Yeah, and I've seen, like, tons of, like, three-legged stools on sale for, like, full retail value. So I don't want to hear fucking shit about his three-legged chair. (laughs) Maybe it was designed that way. Yeah. None of this embarrasses Marks or his wife. You are received in the friendliest of fashions. Pipes and tobacco and whatever else there might be are offered to you most Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's a nice guy. That's right. Cordially. Good guy. He's a good host. Stand-up guy. Intellectually spirited and agreeable conversation makes amends for the domestic deficiency, at least in part. One even grows accustomed to the company and finds the circle interesting, even original. This is the true picture of the family life of the communist chief, Marx. If this does so not base. ring true for leftists, this guy sounds like yeah. every fucking like hippie person <laughs> who's just like cool to be around and maybe doesn't have yeah. the most well kept house. It's like, yeah, you pick one or the other. Like you can have somebody who's cool or somebody who spends all their time being OCD about cleaning the house. It's like I don't know. Yeah. Actually, now now I sound ableist to my OCD comrades. Sorry, <laughs> I, have, I have a bit of it myself. Yeah, yeah. During the next and last decade of his life, Marx's creative energies declined. He was beset by what he called quote chronic mental depression and his life turned inward toward his family. He was unable to complete any substantial work, though he still read widely and undertook to learn Russian. Increasingly, he looked to a European war for the overthrow of Russian Tsarism, the mainstay of reaction, hoping that this would revive the political energies of the working classes. He was moved by what he considered to be the selfless courage of the Russian terrorists who assassinated the Tsar Alexander II in 1881. Let's fucking go! (laughs) Right? (laughs) He felt this to be, quote, a historically inevitable means of action. Despite Marx's withdrawal from active politics, he still influenced, critiqued, and shaped the ideas, actions, and coalitions of leaders of working class and socialist movements, such as those of the German Social Democratic Party in 1875, the French Socialist Workers' Federation in 1889, and Henry Mayer's Hindman's England for All in 1881. During his last years, Marx spent much time at health resorts and even traveled to Algiers. He was broken by the death of his wife on December 2, 1881, and of his eldest daughter, Jenny Longbay, on January 11, 1883. He died in London, evidently of a lung abscess, in the following year. At Marx's funeral in Highgate Cemetery, Engels declared that Marx was, quote, the best hated and most calumniated man of his time, and that Marx was, before all else, a revolutionist. They hate us because they ain't us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing about it, too. It's like, Marx's theories and his works and all his writings had to live through a whole, like, couple centuries of capitalism seeming to work like seemingly working because everybody who was doing it and everybody who was touting the benefits of it was ignoring the masses of slave labor and exploitation that it was built on so then 
it had to get to the point where like here and now we can fucking podcast and we have something like the internet we can actually reach like mass audiences and talk about Marx's work and then like thank you Al Gore like <laughs> <laughs> sorry oh that was great <laughs> okay so at Marx's funeral in Highgate Cemetery Engels declared that Marx was quote the best hated and most calumniated man of his time and that Marx was before all else a revolutionist above all Marx was a fighter willing to sacrifice anything in the battle for his conception of a better society he regarded struggle as the law of life and existence and then we have another section here about Marx's legacy and its impact on economics and politics I mean the quick version of it is like he was right and everybody's just been coping and seething ever since. <laughs> like you said that earlier, Sterling, because there was another podcast I just listened to yesterday and I want to say it was Ben uh-huh. Norton and he was saying that capitalists, they study Marx. Like they purposely, especially when they get to this the high level, smart they, ones they do. read Marx. I mean, it, it really is like an actual blueprint of how to do it. Like you have to be a fucking piece of shit to read Marx and apply it in that manner and it's fucking dense like you've got to fucking want it like you better have that hunger anyone who hasn't dove into capital like <laughs> i can go back through fucking chapters i've read and still be blessed if i can absorb 10 percent of what i'm fucking reading like that shit's it's intense but if you really want to get rich like you literally can it is definitely a, a path towards that if you want to do i don't think anyone ayn rand any fucking one has written a book that could be applied in that direction more than fucking capital yeah because mars doesn't just tell you like one path he's not like these like guys who are like oh i made a bunch of money by investing in real estate and now i don't have to work so you can do that he's like no you can do that or you can also like here's how to maximize the efficiency in any factory process and henry ford was like oh that's a good idea sir i think i will do exactly that yeah yeah it's it's literally he wrote the diagnostic book on how the fucking engine runs like capital is not a book about communism capital is a book about capitalism that you read and go oh fuck this shit yeah (laughs) but anyway exactly so a bit about marx's legacy and his impact on economics and politics to say the least the influence of marx's ideas has been enormous the international working men's association called marx's masterpiece das capital quote the bible of the working class it seems obvious to say, but Das Kapital and other writings by Marx and Engels form the basis of the body of thought and belief known as Marxism, and these works inspired the foundation of many communist regimes in the 20th century. Even social democracy's origins lie in the 1860s as a revolutionary socialism associated with orthodox Marxism. They just kind of strayed from the path quite a bit after that. The most memorable pages in Das Kapital are the descriptive passages culled from the parliamentary blue books on the misery of the English working class. Marx believed that this misery would increase, while at the same time the monopoly of capital would become a fetter upon production until finally, quote, the knell of capitalist private property sounds. The expropriators are expropriated. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I know, right? It sounds good, doesn't it? (laughs) Marx never claimed to have discovered the existence of classes and class struggles in modern society. Quote, bourgeois historians, he acknowledged, had described them long before he had. Marx took up the very different versions of socialism that were current in the early 19th century and welded them together into a doctrine that, according even to modern liberals, continued to be the dominant version of socialism for half a century after his death, and the supporters of existing socialist countries would argue continues to dominate socialist thought and action today. His emphasis on the influence of economic structure on historical development has proved to be of lasting significance. Oh, and then I put something in the notes here, because I just, when I was reading through these notes, it's purely my editorializing, but Marx and Engels' works offer some of the most foundational principles of modern thought in the fields of social sciences and political economy, 
To such a degree that the liberal response to this was to split Marxism up into different fields of study and encourage specialization, individualization of social phenomena, and the view of these fields as those of academic study rather than direct action, and most conveniently, the pursuit of all of these in the interest of profit. But back to Marx's legacy. Marx claimed to have proved that each phase in the development of production was associated with a corresponding class structure, and that the struggle of classes led necessarily to the dictatorship of the proletariat, ushering in the advent of a classless society. Marx's analysis proposed that the working classes were still just as oppressed under the capitalist bourgeoisie at the end of the 18th century as earlier slaves or serfs had been under feudal systems. He also asserted that capitalism is fundamentally self-destructive, and that it results in cycles of exponentially increasing prosperity and decline. Eventually, once the workers of the world become aware of the potential, they will overthrow the capitalist system through the means of revolution and establish an international communist society. Although Marx stressed economic issues in his writings, his major impact has been in the fields of sociology and history. Marx's most important contribution to sociological theory was his general mode of analysis, the quote, dialectical model, which regards every social system as having within it imminent forces that give rise to, quote, contradictions or disequilibria that can be resolved only by a new social system. Neo-Marxists, who no longer accept the economic reasoning in Das Kapital, are still guided by this model in their approach to capitalist society. Marx's mode of analysis, like those of Thomas Malthus, Herbert Spencer, or Vilfredo Pareto, has become one of the theoretical structures that are the heritage of the social scientists. Marx's critical theories about society, economics, and politics, collectively understood as Marxism, hold that human societies develop through class conflict. In the capitalist mode of production, this manifests itself in the conflict between the ruling classes, known as the bourgeoisie, that control the means of production and the working classes, known as the proletariat, that enable these means by selling their labor power in return for wages. Employing a critical approach known as historical materialism, Marx predicted that capitalism produced internal tensions like previous socioeconomic systems, and that these tensions would lead to its self-destruction and replacement by a new system known as the socialist mode of production. For Marx, class antagonisms under capitalism, owing in part to its instability and its crisis-prone nature, would eventuate the working class's development of class consciousness, leading to their conquest of political power and eventually the establishment of a classless communist society constituted by a free association of producers. Marx actively pressed for its implementation, arguing that the working class should carry out organized proletarian revolutionary action to topple capitalism and bring about socioeconomic emancipation. And that was all just from Wikipedia, and it's like pretty dense, but like the last couple lines I think are really important because it stresses how Marx's eventual goal was like what the libertarians think capitalism is, which is like actual free association of just individual agents with mm -hmm. no coercion behind it. In the early post-war era, social democrats in Western Europe rejected the quote Stalinist political and economic model, which was then current in the Soviet Union. They committed themselves either to an alternative path to socialism or to a compromise between capitalism and socialism. Yeah, we call that class collaborationist, and it fucking sucks. During the post-war period, social democrats embraced the idea of a mixed economy based on the predominance of private property with only a minority of essential utilities and public services being under public ownership. As a policy regime, social democracy became associated with Keynesian economics, state interventionism, and the welfare state as a way to avoid capitalism's typical crises and to avert or prevent mass unemployment without abolishing factor markets, private property, and wage labor. Yeah, how the fuck did that work out? Where did it get us now? Yeah, this liberalism's getting out of control. Let's try some liberal shit. Yeah. With the rise in popularity of neoliberalism and the new right by the 1980s, many social democratic parties incorporated third-way ideology, aiming to fuse economic liberalism with social democratic welfare policies. This yeah. This, I know, it just... But then again, this just sounds like what people imagine China is doing, but... There's a lot of discrepancies that we could get into, but we're not going to do that tonight. Yeah, no, tonight's not the night for it. Probably first and foremost being that none of the Scandinavian countries have 
communist parties that are running their government. This way, whatever concessions they're making, they're not run by <laughs> communists. Sorry. Yep. And let me just read like the first couple fun facts here. Due to a condition referred to as a weak chest, Marx was excused from military duty when he turned 18. Nice. What's a weak chest? A dick too big. It was weighing him down. <laughs> it's probably like a concrete. Like asthma or something? No. Yeah, he, he fucking smoked different. They couldn't keep up with him. Weak, weak chest, my ass. First, you're complaining about the smoke clouds. Now you're talking about a weak chest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Marx was considering an academic career, but this path was barred by the government's growing opposition to classical liberalism and the young Hegelians. So he didn't sell out. Marx burned parts of his first novel, thinking it wasn't very good. Only fragments survive. Marx's doctoral thesis was predictably controversial. It declared the primacy of philosophy over religion. Marx married an aristocrat mm-hmm. who was older than him. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, why would you not? Sugar mama. I would do it. <laughs> Marx's mother was also from a family of Dutch industrialists who went on to establish the Philips Electronics Company. While in exile in London, he often relied on loans from a rich uncle who had his own tobacco company. Hmm. Marx had been emotionally close to his father and treasured his memory after he died. That just, like, dispenses with all that fucking criticism. Like, that's literally, like, the, one of the main criticisms that they have of, like, communists. Like, oh, you just hate your dad. That's the only reason you, like, bother to study all this fucking economic theory and history. It's like, sure, bro. <laughs> you fucking dad-hating motherfucker spending a thousand hours studying history just to spite him. Notice they never make the connection about, like, what right-wing politics and all their misogyny says about their relationships with their mothers. They never, like, do the flip side. You know, the two sides of the equation, you guys. <laughs> Uh, Marx said, oh, sorry, Marx was an atheist. <laughs> oh, yeah. Marx and Bauer scandalized their class by getting drunk, laughing in church, and galloping through the streets on donkeys. On donkeys? <laughs> what? <laughs> Alright, you guys. <laughs> oh, it's funny because cool. it doesn't make sense. <laughs> Why not? Marx's daughter, Eleanor, helped him with his work and was later important to the British labor movement. Much of Marx's work was not published during his lifetime. According to the Oxford Handbook of Karl Marx, quote, Marx used many terms to refer to a post-capitalist society, positive humanism, socialism, communism, realm of free individuality, free association of producers, etc. He used these terms completely interchangeably for all of the grammar Nazis. In the- That's actually great. Like, literally since we've known each other, for the whole time that we've been talking about this shit, I've been saying... What did people have to do? Just like start translating Marxist theory to like layman's terms, just hide the terms so that it doesn't sound like Marxism and just say all the same things and people would just laugh it up. Like people would absolutely love oh. it. Especially if you started using terms like free association of producers. Holy shit, the libertarians would dive for this shit. They would love it. <laughs> yeah, it's like that Anthony Oliver guy. He literally is disguising his song as like a Marxist message, which people are lapping up. Meanwhile, it's apparently just about the Jews did 9 11. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's actually what the song is about for our listeners. We Surprise. will put out that episode, by the way. Another we we will do. I promise. Yeah, I wish yeah. I was kidding. <laughs> no, I mean that's one hundred percent serious. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels are generally considered to have coined the term "lumpen proletariat." It's a term for the poor, composed of the German word "lumpen," which is usually translated as "ragged," and "proletariat," a French word adopted as a common Marxist term for the class of wage earners in a capitalist system. So mm-hmm. it means ragged, uh, ragged, yeah, ragged workers, lumpen proletariat. Yeah, and, and colloquially, it also means like incredibly hung. Oh, nice. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yeah, that 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 checks out. Of course, that does. 
Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, you can fact check that. <laughs> Karl Marx used the term proletariat to describe the working class. He was not the first to do so. The term originated in ancient Rome. Marx drank heavily until his death after joining the Trier Tavern Club, drinking society in the 1830s. It didn't apparently stop him from being productive. He was like, I'm really good at drinking. I'm going to go pro. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Marx's grave currently sees about 200 visitors a day, and the graveyard recently instituted a $6 entry fee, which some critics claim would have Marx spinning in his grave. I mean, how do you think he would feel about <laughs> having an entry fee for his grave? Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, I can see him being upset. I would got it. I just, it feels like it would rub him the wrong way. For oh, yeah. Except for all those fucking liberals. He's like, yeah, make those fuckers pay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, think of it like this. He's on his fucking deathbed, and you're telling him, hey, just want you to know, like, don't worry. When we lay you to rest, you got a nice tomb, beautiful headstone, but we're going to have to charge $6 for everybody to visit you. How would you react? Or whatever yeah. the equivalent at the time was. But, like, I don't think you would be fucking happy about that. Okay, I've changed my position. I actually think the $6 fee is a good thing. Because as if a upkeep, well, no, no, here, because people if you're dumb enough it. to pay the fee, you're a liberal and you deserve <laughs> to get fleeced. <laughs> you should be like sneaking in after hours or doing something like getting around it in some way, like a real communist. That is to say, unless it is just going to upkeep, because I hear his grave gets vandalized a lot. Obviously, that would make sense because a bunch of fucking coward fascists that you know, yeah, gotta yeah, go. The more I'm thinking on it, the more I'm reeling back my stance, but I, I still think I was funny at the first place, or unless. <laughs> The proceeds go to like descendants of Marx's family. In that case, then yeah, pay the fee. But otherwise, fucking sneak in. It's Marx's grave. Just walk to the front. They put their hand out for the money. Just shake it. I serve the Soviet Union. Walk through. What are they gonna <laughs> do? And it's like the fucking Che Guevara t-shirts. I'm yeah, sure he'd love that. <laughs> There's nobody seeing any profit that would uh, stand to reasonably benefit from the Che Guevara's image. So yeah, don't pay money for those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why has no one made a t-shirt of him? Like you know. On a motorcycle, because like he rode motorcycles a lot, like just tight jeans, ass out kind of thing. <laughs> Jay Z Dukes, I like it. Yeah, Che just caked up. I'm here for it. So, prehistoric communal societies. In one of the drafts of this letter, Marx reveals his growing passion for anthropology, motivated by his belief that future communism would be a return on a higher level to the communism of our prehistoric past. He wrote that, quote, the historical trend of our age is the fatal crisis which capitalist production has undergone in the European and American countries where it has reached its highest peak. A crisis that will end in its destruction, in the return of modern society to a higher form of the most archaic type, collective production and appropriation. I feel like if you took that quote and put it over like a Ted Kaczynski image, like it would go wild <laughs> on like the right wing, like return to tradition, like all the fucking homestead wannabe guys like who are thinking that that's going to be the solution to all of America's ills. They're like, again, because they can only imagine an individual solution. They're like, oh, I'm just going to start a farm in the middle of nowhere so that I can avoid all of this capitalist shit. It's like. It's not going to work, bro. I say it all the time. It's not going to work. But this mm -hmm. sounds like that. Like the historical trend of our age is the fatal crisis which capitalist production has undergone in the European and American countries, where it's reached its highest peak, crisis that will end in its destruction. That totally sounds like Ted K. In the return of modern society to a higher form of the most archaic type, collective production and appropriate, right up until those last four words. And then once he starts saying collective, then it's up. Oh, we've gotten into Stalin territory. He added that, quote, the vitality of primitive communities was incomparably greater than that of Semitic, Greek, or Roman, etc. societies, and a fortiori, that of modern capitalist societies. Don't know what a fortiori means, but... I don't know. I like the mouthfeel, though. Say it one more time. A fortiori. <laughs> yeah, I like Before that. he died, 
Marx asked Engels to write up these ideas, which were published in 1884 under the title of The Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. Um, pseudonyms. Marx frequently used pseudonyms often when renting a house or flat, apparently to make it harder for the authorities to track him down. Nice. In Paris, he used that of, quote, Monsieur Rambos. Whilst in London, he signed off his letters as A. Williams. His friends referred to him as, quote, Moore, owing to his dark complexion and black curly hair, while he encouraged his children to call him Old Nick and Charlie. He also bestowed nicknames and pseudonyms on his friends and family as well, referring to Friedrich Engels as, quote, General, his housekeeper, Helene, as Lynchin, or Nim, while one of his daughters, Jenny Chin, was referred to as Kiki, Emperor of China, and another, Laura, was known as Kakadu, or the Hottentot. I guess they probably all sound better in German, but it's just kind of, like, awkward here. I don't know I could keep up with that many nicknames for people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Marx left a personal estate valued for probate at 250 pounds, equivalent to $26,788 in 2021. Upon his own death in 1895, Engels left Marx's two surviving daughters a, quote, significant portion of his considerable estate, valued in 2011 at 4.8 million U.S. dollars. Wow, that's nice of Engels. Yeah, the first part I was, like, relating to, then the second part I was like, oh, never mind, <laughs> I'm not Marx. Uh, German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck had enacted the anti-socialist laws in 1878. At the time of the anti-socialist laws beginning to be drafted but not yet published in 1878, Marx spoke of the possibilities of legislative reforms by an elected government composed of working-class legislative members, but also of the willingness to use force should force be used against the working class. Uh, Marx's political and economic writing is brimming with evocative Gothic metaphors involving monsters, werewolves, and vampires. Marx was particularly fond of the vampire metaphor, which he variously used to describe the central process of profit-taking within capitalism as capital, quote, constantly sucking in living labor as its soul, vampire-like. I like that. The next one is Smarter Than Einstein. Marx was voted the, quote, greatest thinker of the millennium in a 1999 BBC poll, beating out several intellectual titans in the form of Charles Darwin, Albert Einstein, and Isaac Newton. Thank you, science nerds. <laughs> <laughs> Left without pants, Marx lived much of his adult life in a state of abject poverty and was frequently being chased down by lenders and landlords to whom he owed money. Four of Marx's seven children died at a young age as a result of the family's deep poverty, and it's reported that occasionally Marx was unable to leave the house as his wife Jenny had to go pawn his trousers in order to put food on the table. Escaping death, an American Civil War Union general once plotted to kill Marx for being too conservative. Yeah, you read that right. August Willich was a Prussian-born revolutionary communist who was a co-leader of the anti-Marx group of the League of Communists during the 1840s. Out of political animosity, Willich publicly insulted Marx as a means to goading him into a duel where Willich planned to kill the young Karl. Marx declined to duel, and it never happened. Willich later emigrated to the United States and joined the Union Army, where he fought in the Civil War as a general. He probably couldn't go to the duel because he didn't have pants. That's <laughs> <laughs> really good. Sorry, man, I really like to duel you, but... I sold my pants. Had to pawn the pants. I don't again. think I can make it. <laughs> Wait until next payday, I can buy my pants back, and then it's on. Uh, scientific dedication. Karl Marx dedicated his most scientific work, Das Kapital, to natural scientist and founder of evolutionary theory, Charles Darwin. Marx and Engels were both early fans of Darwin's On the Origin of Species, calling him, quote, absolutely splendid, and saying that On the Origin of Species was, quote, the book which contains the basis in natural history for our view. Very cool. So I have, like, these other sections and stuff. It was, like, a whole section on, like, Christianity and their views on Marx. But I'm going to skip that because our comrade They're Meta, fascist. who's been, Well, I mean, there's, like, that's, <laughs> in a word, that's the easiest way to get, get at it. <laughs> but that being said, our comrade Meta, who's been writing our notes and wrote all the notes for this episode, is going to write the notes for the next four in this Five Heads of Marxism series. 
she also wrote an essay. She was just so taken up with, once I asked her to write a section for this episode about Christianity and the lies they tell about Marx and Marxism, she started looking into it. She went down such a rabbit hole that she wrote, I want to say it's like 10 or 20 pages about Christianity and its ties to fascism, its views on Marxism and its opposition to Marxism, even though- Because it's fascist. But even though socialism absolutely should be in line with all of Jesus's and the Bible's teachings yeah, and everything- yeah, but- Christians are not in line with the Bible's teaching. Of course not. <laughs> but I say all that just to say that we're going to have an entire episode where we read her episode with her. I think we finally convinced her to appear on the show. Um, Very cool. Yeah, so it's going to be really cool. You know what's funny is like the last time we were recording, because this is not like our wrap-up section, I wanted to address a couple of things just about the podcast itself, because now we're doing this like, like I said, this series, and then we will finally get back to some regular episodes. We'll start going through the episode suggestions in our Discord and actually do the things that our listeners want us to do, <laughs> instead of just like <laughs> this series that I got myself like OCD fixated on. Six months on one Mark's episode. <laughs> oh my God, dude. I'm so sorry, you guys. But um, it's about to be a good episode. <laughs> Oh, and like I said the last time, for some reason I had thought we had lost some patrons and had like less than before. We actually have like over 60 now, but I think more Jeez. people have signed up and like, because there's no tiers. You can sign up for a dollar or five or whatever, and you all get the same content, which is very mm -hmm. little, um, if not just the regular stuff. But I think more Six people- Six months, just baby. Yeah. Six months. I just think people are signing up for the dollar tier, which is fine. Like, I would like people to contribute whatever it is that they absolutely can spare. Just know that- um, Anything that you are giving us is going directly to Comrade Beta and People's Commissar for Production, who's Andrew. Hell yeah. This is his side gig. We're trying to get we're trying to get both of our comrades who work for us out of their day jobs. And then we can worry about ourselves. Maybe we can get the yeah. host out of the others too. But Yo, uh, we have not taken a fucking dime. Yeah. I don't even have the login, but, folks. <laughs> but we're we're all fairly privileged in that we have some source of income, so we try to make sure other people are taken care of before us. Yeah, I do. Um, I don't know. I just feel like the need to remind people of that because it's like, um, it's important to me. Like just as a communist with a communist podcast, I feel like we should let people mm -hmm. know that if you're donating any money to us, it is going directly to the people who help us in the background mm -hmm. doing the really shitty part of this, which is not the fun part, like hosting and just sitting here talking shit on fucking discord. Like the actual mm -hmm. work of it, it goes to making this thing happen, period. But then, yeah, like I said, we all have our day jobs. We're doing fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about it earlier today. I was like, make at, min at minimum a hundred percent, typically more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, Sterling and I have definitely spent money, uh, especially like <laughs> investing in like sound equipment and t-shirts and all the other stuff. Um, I'm definitely in the hole, but that's fine. Cause it's obviously like a passion project. Uh, uh, but I was thinking that earlier today. I was like, um, cause I want to do an episode later this week, like maybe another live episode. And I would like to talk about something other than Palestine, not because it's not worth talking about, obviously, but because my position here in the West is like a white dude who is paying taxes to literally fund the Palestinian genocide. Um, yep. I don't like that. And as much as I want to just say a lot of things about it online on my podcast, I just don't have any original takes. I don't have any new things or any kind of new input to say. All I can say is like, everyone is doing right now what they would have been doing during the Holocaust. And all I can think of when I look at like, what we're fact. doing- but it's like, facts. that just means that I, during the Holocaust, would have been standing there pointing at the Holocaust happening, saying, hey, subscribe to my Patreon so I can continue to tell you that, that the Holocaust is happening. It's like, it's literally uh, well, like... Well, to, to be fair, like, but I, I'm not going to diminish the Holocaust, which was significantly... Yeah, I mean, the I Holocaust mean, comparison obviously is like fraught with a lot of complications, but like, it is a genocide. Yeah. And it's just incredibly ironic because it's being done by the 
Israeli state and everything, and they use the Holocaust to their advantage for their rhetoric all the time. But obviously, it's not going to be on the scale of the. Hol- I mean, I hope it's well, not. It's it's genuinely not uh, hypocritical or ironic. But I have not posted anything online about this whole thing, and not for any particular reason. Uh, besides the fact that I truly believe anyone who is on the left fucking knows. I don't have to tell you shit. Like, you know, when the Israeli state starts popping off and you start seeing headlines, Israel versus Hamas, not Palestine, not Gaza, Hamas, and you start seeing like the wordplay where someone says Hamas is and then ISIS underneath it and how they, they lined up the letters to basically call Hamas ISIS. Uh, if you have the position that Israel is 100% in the right and Palestine is not, then you are one of two people, a fucking fascist or fucking stupid, <laughs> like just completely ignorant of a base level understanding of the conflict. So I don't give a fuck to talk to either of those people and the people I would talk to fucking already know, you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. Yeah, no, it's just it's just weird. Like, obviously, I'm I'm doing whatever I can. Like on my fucking Instagram meme page, like when there are Palestinian accounts, mm-hmm. anyone sends me a collab where I can post any kind of fundraiser or direct action, I'm obviously accepting that. Like, oh yeah, immediately. I don't know how much any of that stuff does. Obviously, it's like marginal at best. But something about it just feels really weird to me. Just being like somebody who's talking online about this stuff, especially being white here in the U.S. Yeah, just like I was saying to Evan the other day. The idea of like an emergency podcast episode just makes me cringe. Just the term emergency podcast episode, just like something about it. And I think we've even done those before. Like, I think we may have even recorded yeah. ones that we called them, but something about that makes me cringe yeah. on a gut level. It's just like, ugh, like, I don't, I don't like that. It's fuel yeah. for debaters is what it is. Like yeah. the, the people that look for those are looking for, give me a couple things I can post on Facebook. And I don't give a fuck about those people either. So that's all just to say, um, as we're wrapping up the first in a series of Five Heads on Marxism on Karl Marx, and this is currently as the Palestinian-Israeli conflict has like just kicked into such a high gear that we are now pretty much de facto in World War III. We're just kind of waiting for like Iran to uh, announce its like participation in this too, and it seems yeah. like it's getting pretty close. And I just want to also say to people, please remember that World War III will not be called World War III while it's happening. That only happens after. Like You guys realize like, there's World War not called sure. that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. they were just called like mm-hmm. a war that we're in at the moment like they didn't call it the great war even like while it was happening like, <laughs> uh, so just realize it's not going to be called world war three till about 10 20 years from now that's even if it's over by then we'll see so yeah even though we are in these what do you call them unprecedented times these uncertain times um <laughs> if you feel like spending money on a podcast if you want to give us a dollar or five here and there just know that it's going to people who are actually doing hard work none of us white boys who talk shit into a microphone are keeping any of it spending money yep to keep this going keep the white comments on that side of the Disney <laughs> boys <laughs> sorry Lord. would you just pass you well i'm sorry man i also got like the, i got the notes open so it's like reflecting on my face it looks like i'm wider than i actually am this is what i'm dealing with all right so yeah i think we can finally wrap it up here and just to say that i'm super appreciative to everyone who does subscribe to the patreon just yeah that's all i'm saying just to let you know that your uh your money is going to where it is most needed and deserved but if you're going to donate your money, if you're on the fence, if you had limited excess funds, obviously donate them to worthy causes. 
get out and join an organization please join the psl join like the sra join whatever is actually in your area join uhuru org any org that you can like donate money to and you know it's going to somewhere good and it's like going to mutual aid and direct action i would much prefer that than you donating to our podcast but if you can do both yeah. great so also we still have plenty of reagan is satan t-shirts i know our uh website thing is down because it's just a pain in the ass to deal with and we just never put it back up but yeah. if you guys shoot uh mike a dm on the turn left this instagram we'll get it worked out if you want a shirt yeah thank you so much for mentioning that certainly i was definitely going to kick myself if i forgot that like the shopify link is broken so you can't just buy the shirts online with just like a form but if you just yeah. dm us and then we'll give you like a link to like a venmo or a cash app or something and then we'll just mail you the shirt and it's actually the same mm-hmm. either way like that's what we were going to do either way so if you think mm-hmm. that it's like less secure somehow, so we were always going to get your address and your info whatever yeah. you put it in the website. Like um, I gotta put it thing. on a fucking label somehow. <laughs> it was always us just sending it to your house either way. So like don't fret. Like Yeah, the only thing here is maybe you could make your name a little more anonymous. I'll fucking send it to your Xbox handle. I don't give yeah. a shit. Yeah, now your credit card info is not gonna get stolen by Shopify to send you targeted ads for whatever else. So it's just going right down. And maybe we can even save you a couple bucks so we don't have to pay Shopify fees. So anything else you guys want to mention? Any plugs or anything? Mm. All right, bros. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Peace.